Some of you uh, perhaps may be familiar with the name uh, Tom Rayner. Uh, he is a writer, he is uh, a speaker, a researcher. Uh, he was former president and CEO of uh, Lifeway, which uh, large publishing arm of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. Several years ago, he put together a list of criticisms actually leveled at pastors in various churches. Uh, these are not made up. These are not invented. It's not a, kind of a comedy thing. These are actual criticisms that over the years he's collected, been directed at pastors in various congregations. Let me read. It's a long list. I, I selected from the list uh, several. Uh, the first one is this. You didn't send me a thank you note for my thank you note. <laughs> Number two, I will leave the church if you don't put tissue seat covers in the bathrooms. Number three, why do we have to follow something an apostle wrote 2,000 years ago? Number four, the VBS hot dogs are too cheap. Number five, you don't tell enough jokes when you preach. Number six, you need to stop talking about making disciples. Tom Rayner said that comment, believe it or not, was from an elder. When you changed the name from Sunday school to small groups, you took Jesus and the Bible out of the church. Number eight, your hair color is too dark for someone in your profession. And then Tom Rayner, in parentheses, put this, don't worry, the more I hear from you, the grayer it gets. <laughs> Number nine, just because it's in the Bible, you don't have to talk about it. Number 10, your wife used the wrong spoon in the coleslaw at the church social. Number 11, we need to throw out the guitar to the streets. The piano is the only instrument that belongs in the church. Number 12, in your sermon you ended a sentence with a preposition. Number 13, final one, your pregnant wife is faking morning sickness. Anyone who is in public ministry, will always find himself or herself facing criticism. Now, I hope you understand there are two kinds of criticism. Uh, criticism can be positive, and when it is, it's a wonderful thing. So you're a basketball coach, and you have a player on the team that has great potential, but maybe that player isn't putting in the effort, putting in the practice is kind of lackadaisical in the drills. And so you take that player aside and you say, you know, you've got a lot of potential, but there are some things with your game that need to improve. I'm here to help you. Are you willing to listen? I'll work with you, and I'll make you the best basketball player you can be. All right, that kind of criticism is positive. It's upbuilding. It encourages the player to be the best that that player can possibly be. Uh, or, for example, my wife says to me, uh, that tie doesn't go with that. Now, she didn't tell me that this morning. Maybe she didn't see when I went out of the house if this tie is a good one or not. Uh, but she'll say something like that, or you need to pick out a different shirt. Well, um, I probably do. Uh, her criticism isn't meant to harm me. It's meant to keep me from looking like a dork, and that's a positive thing. And, and, and so, uh, you know, so criticism can be positive. In all kinds of ways. I can remember in my first pastorate, my elders offered me um, positive upbuilding criticism because I was a new pastor. 
I mean, I was just out of school. And of course, when you're out of school, you think you know what to do, and you don't. Um, my dad was a pastor, so I thought I knew what I, what I should be doing. I didn't. And uh, my elders gave me a lot of wonderful, positive criticisms. Like, that probably wasn't the best way to do that. Here's why. Or next time you probably want to, X or Y. Those positive criticisms, I hold on to those today. I am so thankful for them. I have been blessed with them over the years. So criticism can be a wonderful, positive sort of thing, but it can also be destructive. It can be mean-spirited, it can be hostile, it can be judgmental, it can be uh, intended to discredit or harm rather than build up. And the second kind of criticism is what Paul faced in his ministry. The entire book of 2 Corinthians, you see that undercurrent of criticism that Paul is addressing, unjust criticism that is coming his way. And what were some of the criticisms of Paul? And of course, it wasn't just with a little minority in Corinth, but there were people in other places, other cities that he went, had some of the same or maybe a few different criticisms. So from reading through Paul's letters, reading through the book of Acts, reading between the lines sometimes, here's what we discover. There were those critical of Paul's appearance. There were those critical of his speaking ability. There were those in Corinth who were critical because he didn't have official letters of recommendation from headquarters. So you cl come claiming to proclaim Christ, the headquarters of the church is in Jerusalem. Where are your letters from like Peter and John or Andrew or somebody like that, that that indicate that you are authorized to do what you're doing? Where are your letters of recommendation? You don't have them. You always seem to be in trouble. That was a criticism. Every place you go, you get in trouble or get a riot started or something. And you're always struggling with illness, chronic illnesses of various kinds. Not exactly the mark of somebody living the victorious Christian life. And some of us even wonder about your apostleship. He was accused of being inconsistent, unreliable. Remember that in the opening of 2 Corinthians, Paul had laid out his travel plans, but for good reason he had to change them. It's like, you can't believe a word you say. You said you were coming X day, X month. You didn't show up. Can't trust what you say. You're unreliable. That just shows it. He was accused of using manipulative methods to get what he wanted. Um, he was accused of being an anything-goes liberal because... Paul didn't force the Gentiles to follow all the Mosaic regulations in the first five books of the Old Testament, dietary laws and all that. Well, that's what liberals do. So Paul was accused of being an anything-goes liberal. Uh, the relief fund, which Paul has been talking about, it's really a money-making scam, some said. And so he's using it as a way to line his own pockets appearing to be so humble and all that sort of thing. He really isn't. And then the criticism that shows up in our text in chapter 10 is Paul is all big and tough when he's hundreds of miles away. So when he's at a safe distance, he'll write you these blistering letters, which are harsh and judgmental and really tough. But then when he shows up in person, oh, what a different person he is. He's all meek and mild and kind of oily and cringing in the corner kind of person. 
That was the accusation among many. And so Paul starts with that one this morning. And so Paul in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 launches into an extended defense of his ministry, which will go on for quite some verses. And what he's in essence saying is, no matter what people say, here's the reality. And so he begins in this 10th chapter. You notice I put part one on the screen. I'm only going to look this morning with you at the first two verses of this text. Um, there are several important headings here that, uh, that Paul, um, Paul sets forth in this passage, but I want to just start with the first two verses and just focus on the first of four this morning. Here's the opening two verses. Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, and here's the criticism, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. As I mentioned just a moment ago, one of the criticisms was that Paul was really bold when he wasn't in Corinth. For us, boldness is a positive virtue, isn't it? If somebody is bold, that person is courageous. That person is confident. Boldness, we would all say, is a good thing. It's good to be bold in all the circumstances of life. But what Paul's detractors meant by boldness is he's arrogant. He is in your face. He is audacious. Uh, he rubs you the wrong way, that kind of thing. And so when Paul writes these letters, this is what the minority in Corinth said, when he writes these letters, it's all bluster and big talk and intimidation, boldness. But when he shows up in person, oh, what a different person gets off the boat in the harbor in Corinth. He comes across as oh so humble. And by calling him humble, Paul's detractors don't mean anything positive by that word either. Uh, for us, humility is a positive thing, isn't it? If somebody is humble, a humble person is a courteous person. Uh, a humble person is respectful to other people. Uh, it's the opposite of aggressiveness. It's the opposite of arrogance and boastfulness and uh, vanity. Uh, humility is a virtue that is highlighted in the Scripture again and again. But what Paul's detractors meant by humility was you're timid, you're cringing, you're a people pleaser, you're kind of an oily character, you're pathetically weak, that's who you really are. But Paul himself was truly bold in the best sense of the word, and he was truly humble in the best sense of the word. And what Paul exemplified in his life uh, is what we should exemplify in our lives as believers. Let's start with humility. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ and how humility marked his life and his, and his ministry. So, for example, in uh, Matthew chapter 11, what does Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. That's how Jesus described himself. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul calls each one of us to a life of humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. 
Why is that? Well, because humility marked Christ in his incarnation. Going on in Philippians, just a few verses later, Paul says, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Apostle Peter echoes the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Clothe yourselves, Peter says, all of you, with humility toward one another. So the, the charge against Paul, the accusation is Paul is humble when he shows up in Corinth. And Paul answers the charge by saying, if by humility you mean some kind of a groveling timidity, if that's what you mean by humility, then no, I'm not humble. But if by humility you mean that my approach, my attitude, my ministry to you and to all believers has always been to model the humility of Christ, yes, then I am the accusation, if you will, is true. Paul says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. It's amazing how the folks in Corinth twisted Paul's uh, genuine humility into something uh, that was nefarious. So, for example, uh, right from the start, Paul didn't take a salary when he came to Corinth. So you can read about the mission endeavor in the book of Acts. So he comes to Corinth. There's no church there. He comes as a church planter. And when he is there bringing the gospel to their city, for the first time, Paul doesn't take a salary. And he addresses the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because there were those who were offended by the fact that he didn't take a salary. Because it's like what you're offering obviously is worthless then. Because if it had any value to it, there'd be a price attached to it. And Paul explains, as the Corinthians are attacking him for not taking a salary when he got off the boat and planted the church, Paul says, now, as all of you Corinthians know, those of us who are in the Lord's work have a right to a salary. That's very clear from the teaching of Jesus, all right? But Paul says, I didn't make use of that right, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 9, I didn't make use of that right when I came to Corinth and established the church because I didn't want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is God, for Jesus' sake, freely forgives us of all of our sins. It's a free gift of grace. Oh, by the way, where's my paycheck? And so Paul, not wanting to have receiving any kind of payment, undermining the message he's trying to preach, the gospel is free, and I'm coming to you free to make a point, Paul is saying. But there were those who were offended. It was a beautiful reflection of the ministry of Christ, but not to some. The, the charge against him in Corinth was, hey, wake up, people in the congregation. Paul has ulterior motives for doing this. You know, this I'm not taking a salary business. It's all manipulative. It's all humbug. It's all false humility. The issue didn't go away. Paul has to address it in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 7, here's what Paul asks. He asks this rhetorical question. He said, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, that you might be saved, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Did I sin against you by not taking a salary? Was there something wrong with that? And some in Corinth said, yes, there was, believe it or not. And so the charge against Paul 
is you've got this kind of manipulative humility that takes advantage of people, takes advantage in the congregation. But when you're at a safe distance, oh, then you're all bold. Then you're in your face. Then you're so strong. When you come to Corinth, you come so weak and so timid, and you lead people astray. Well, Paul's response as he begins his defense here in chapter 10, he says that by the grace of God, Paul says, my apostolic ministry reflects that of Christ. I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I strive to minister with the kind of meekness and gentleness that Jesus showed in his public ministry. But when I need to be forceful, as he says in verse 2, I can be forceful if I need to be, if that is what's called for. Let's think about what Paul says here. I, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The Bible calls you and me to exemplify the life of Christ in whatever it is that we do, in our work, in our service, in our ministry, in our families. What are these two words that Paul uses here, the meekness and the gentleness of Christ? What is meekness? Meekness is an attitude of heart. That's where it starts, doesn't it? It's an attitude of heart that expresses itself in patient endurances when offenses come my way. Meekness is characterized by self-restraint. A person doesn't lash out, for example, when there is a personal criticism or somebody is slandered or you're treated unjustly. A meek person is not arrogant. A meek person doesn't exhibit a prideful sort of assertiveness. A meek person doesn't celebrate getting things from people or in some way taking advantage of, of people. And so Jesus was meek. Now let's be sure that we don't misunderstand what meekness is. It's not the same as weakness. The two aren't the same thing. Uh, on the contrary, a meek person is a person who possesses courage and strength and uh, solid convictions. A meek person is indeed a powerful person but that power is under the control of the Holy Spirit. You think of Moses. The book of Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says, Moses was the meekest person on the face of the earth in his day. That's quite a statement. But what did Moses do when he came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone? And there were the people dancing around the golden calf Moses, in burning anger, took those tablets of stone and smashed them on the ground. There's not a contradiction between meekness and gentleness and having strong, powerful, forceful convictions at the same time. A meek person has as his or her concern the glory of God and the good of others. And sometimes that entails acting in a forceful very direct sort of way. And so for Paul, meekness marked the life of Christ. It marked the life of Moses. But Moses, for all of his meekness, was an extremely powerful person. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, we looked at this verse a moment ago, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek 
in heart. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, Jesus says. Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and of the many items in the list, it includes meekness. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with, among other things, all meekness. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, put on then, Paul says to us as believers, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, put on meekness, the apostle says. And so meekness marked the life of Christ. It is to mark our lives as believers. What about gentleness? Paul says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What is gentleness? What is a gentle person? Uh, It's marked by, gentleness is marked by kindness. Uh, It is marked by tenderness. There's a spirit of moderation. There's the ability to make allowances for other people, despite the fact that a different reaction might be warranted in certain circumstances. What does the scripture have to say? James, as he's contrasting false wisdom and true wisdom, says that the wisdom from heaven, the wisdom from above, is, among other things, gentle. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, Paul says, Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Paul, talking to Timothy about the requirements for a pastor and an elder, says an overseer, an elder, a pastor, must be gentle. And then Titus chapter 3, Paul says to Titus, remind believers to be gentle. So just as Christ was not overbearing and harsh in his ministry, just as he dealt patiently with people, gently with them, Paul says, I seek to model that. You Corinthians maybe don't understand this, but I seek to model that in everything that I do. You recall back in uh, chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 24, Paul writes, My calling is not to lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Now, so Paul says, I entreat you on the basis of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Verse 2, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to show this boldness that you say I have when I write letters, but I don't have when I show up. Paul says, there are some people in the church that I'm going to address with great boldness when I come. So here's what he says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. We'll talk about what that means next time. But Paul says, there are some troublemakers in the church. And when I come, I'm going to deal with them in great boldness. Now, I don't want to have to do that with the rest of you here in the congregation. So get your house in order before I arrive so that I don't have to deal with you in godly boldness. And you will discover, yes, I can write strong letters. And yes, I can be very strong in person if I need to be. But get your house in order. And when when Paul was forceful and strong, in person. Uh, There was a need for plain spoken action and words. It's whenever the gospel was being attacked. It's when the truth of God was being distorted. It's when the salvation of souls was at stake, the well-being of believers. And so Paul says, I'm going to come with great sternness. Well, what happened to all this meekness and gentleness stuff? Well, it's not incompatible with being a person of strong convictions and strong actions. Think about Jesus. 
the money changers. So what does Paul say? Christ here by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So he shows up in the temple, and there are those selling cattle. There are the money changers. What did the meek and gentle Christ do? He made a whip of cords. You remember the story. He flipped over tables in anger. He scattered the coins. He drove out the money changers. And he said, you've made this place, which is to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And he drove them out with a whip of cords. Not inconsistent with the meek and gentle Christ. When the gospel is being distorted, when the truth of God is under attack, when the salvation of souls is at stake, those of us as believers who are to live our lives with meekness and gentleness, when it comes to those kinds of issues, to take a strong and courageous stand, and it's not incompatible as it was with, with Christ, with Moses, meekness and gentleness is not incompatible with taking strong action. And Paul says that's what my ministry looks like. It models that of Christ, and if he were to reference Moses, it would have been the same. You remember in uh, Matthew 27, at the end of his ministry, the meek and gentle Christ is pronouncing woes upon the religious leadership. Religious leadership distorting the gospel, turning people away from the truth. What did Jesus say to them? You blind guides, you hypocrites, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the damnation of hell, Jesus says. Here in our text, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. There's nothing incompatible with taking strong action and speaking strong words and yet having a meek and a gentle demeanor and approach to ministry. And so Paul says, when I come to Corinth, I'm going to come with a spirit of meekness and gentleness. But don't misunderstand, if I have to take strong actions for the sake of the truth, I will take those strong actions. I will be bold when I come. And I will deal with the troublemakers. I trust the rest of you will have your house in order by the time I arrive. So God has called you and me to ministry. Let me, let me just wrap up the thoughts with, with this. God has called you and me to ministry, each in his or her own way. Uh, for some of us, it's full-time. For others, it's part-time. And you think about in a congregation, our size, any size, each one of us has a different personality. Each one of us has a different approach to things. We may look at various things differently. Each one has varying spiritual gifts, but the Lord, as he wired us as we are, as he gifted us as we are, he wants us in the midst of all of our differences in approach and personality and gifts that together in the meekness and gentleness of Christ we serve him and bring glory to his name. But when that is your attitude, as it was with Paul, there will be those who will be dismissive of your efforts. There were some who will be unjustly critical. And maybe you'll hear it directly or somebody will say to you, do you know what so-and-so is saying? They don't say it to your face, but you hear it around the bush. Some will be dismissive of your efforts. Some will be critical of your ministry, whether you are like me, paid full-time or a part-time volunteer in whatever it might be. There will be unjust criticism. But thank God there are always those who are prayerful and encouraging and supportive. 
So whatever your style, whatever your gifts, whatever your personality, God made you the way you are. But in the midst of all that, each of us is called to model this approach that Paul had. I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's what our lives should look like in ministry. And when all is said and done, no matter what others may have said, understand that in the end, it is only the Savior's evaluation that counts for anything. How he evaluates your life and ministry is all that matters in the end. And on that day when you stand before him and you hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, those words will sweep away all other words you've heard through your life of ministry and service. All those other words will become irrelevant when the Savior says, well done good and faithful servant. And so the encouragement to each of you in ministry is to press on, to serve the Lord indeed with gladness and to find your joy in Him and to know that when your conscience is right before the Lord, no matter what others may say or what criticisms may be leveled, in the end it doesn't matter. Because how God evaluates, he knows the heart. That is all that matters in the end. Let's pray together. Lord, our ministry isn't easy. Sometimes criticism is just really silly and off the wall. Your wife used the wrong spoon in the coleslaw. Or, or whatever stupid things some of the criticisms are. But sometimes uh, they are more severe, they are more nefarious. Ah, Paul, you are taking this offering, but you're lining your pockets. That's not a superficial, easily brushed off criticism. And so, Lord, in ministry, all kinds of criticism can come our way. Lord, when the criticism is positive, when it's intended to be upbuilding and affirming, may we embrace it and be thankful for it. When it is hostile, when it is to undermine and attack and discredit, May we leave it at the foot of the cross, knowing that we are answerable ultimately to you, O Lord. Lord, as we are not too many weeks away from fall ministries being uh, restarted full bore, uh, and Lord, as many of your saints here will be involved in ministry in those ways again, Lord, I ask that you would protect and guard hearts and minds even sometimes doing the simplest things, somebody can be critical of it for whatever reason. Lord, we, we pray that you would, as you prepare us for this fall season of ministry in the next couple months here, that, we would, that our hearts, first of all, would be in a right relationship with you, that we would be engaged in ministry not for something we get out of it, but for the good of others, for the glory of your name, and then just with an open heart and with a free spirit to serve you. And then when the criticisms come, to turn it to you in prayer and not to retaliate, not to become bitter and hostile and angry, but with the meekness and gentleness of Christ to press on in whatever ministry you've given us to do. That's what Paul did. That's what you call us to do as well. Lord, we ask that you'd grant it for Christ's sake. Amen.